This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Hi, everyone. People often ask how they can support more great stories from The Wild, and we really appreciate your asking. Thank you. Uh, the Wild is a joint production of myself and KUOW Public Radio, and you can support this vital work and become part of The Wild community by checking out our show notes. There you'll find information about supporting my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, through Patreon. Help fuel the next adventure. Okay, enjoy the episode, guys. It's winter 2009, and I'm driving a snowmobile off the coast of northern Alaska, about five miles out on the sea ice, looking for polar bears. It's icy cold. In front of me, on another snowmobile, is a local Inupiat Inuit, Dale Brower. He's part of the film we're here making for PBS, and he was our guide too. It's a dangerous place, and not just because of polar bears. The ice went on in every direction to the horizon, as far as you could see. Big, flat areas, and then sections where the ice is jagged and pushed upwards. Nothing but white, from the sky down to the ice. Suddenly, Dale stops his snowmobile, so I grind to a halt a few feet behind him. He pulls his parka hood down, looks out over the ice, turns around and says, We gotta go in his very calm but urgent voice. What? What do you mean? I said. We gotta turn around. I had no idea what was going on. Maybe he's seen a polar bear. So I looked around really carefully. My eyelashes were frozen so it wasn't easy to see anything in detail. But to me, nothing looked different to the last five miles we'd traveled on the ice. But it did to Dale, and something had spooked him. So he turns his snowmobile around and hits the gas back towards land. And of course, I follow him. And after about a mile, he finally stops and I I shout, What was it? What did you see? Water sky, he says. What Dale had seen that I definitely had not was water sky. It's a name Inuit people use for a cloud that's a specific color of gray because it's subtly reflecting the area of dangerous open water below. A potentially life-threatening thing when you're out traveling on the ice miles from shore because open water means an opening in the ice you can fall into. Or the ice can break away and be taken miles by wind and currents. He told me that people from his village had even been carried away on drifting ice in the past and had to be rescued. Without Dale, I wouldn't have even known what to look for. I wasn't looking with his eyes, with his experiences. I've been lucky enough to work with indigenous people in a few places around North America. And I always learned something. Because I didn't grow up in that world. I was trained as a traditional scientist to look at the world through that perspective, analytical and clinical. In this Western science, you have to toe the line and keep personal experience and emotions out of it. Science is run as a pretty tight ship. There's good reason for that, of course. But for indigenous people, there's something that comes with spending time in nature that helps you understand it deeply, really intimately. Something more than science. Often it's knowledge from generation after generation of experience. Some say it's just a feeling. 
all of it born from around 14,000 years on this continent. Knowledge of creatures and habitats and weather that you've always depended upon. Knowledge that keeps you alive and a spirituality that comes with that. There's a way to understand nature through both these perspectives alongside each other, indigenous knowledge and Western science. It's a concept known as two-eyed seeing. It's a pioneering new way to understand the natural world and start to decolonize Western science. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. This is the Aquatic Ecosystems Research Laboratory. I think I've got the right place. I'm on the campus of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. I open the door and there's a giant skeleton of a blue whale hanging in the lobby entrance. Professor Reed. Hi, How are you? Nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. I'm here to meet Dr. Andrea Reed. Andrea is an indigenous scientist who leads the Center for Indigenous Fisheries at the university. I want to learn more about this concept called two-eyed seeing as a way to understand wildlife from the perspective of both Western science and indigenous knowledge. Indigenous knowledge refers to understanding and skills built up by a group of people through generations of living closely with nature. Andrea embodies the principles of two-eyed seeing into her work with the university. She tells me about two big studies she recently did, looking at two sets of people with knowledge. One was with freshwater scientists from around the world, like bona fide experts in the eyes of universities, and then one focused on key threats through the eyes of, of elders and knowledge keepers across BC. Meaning the elders and knowledge keepers of the indigenous people of British Columbia. Using scientific research data, Andrea looked at the rate at which we're losing biodiversity in these freshwater river systems. She found that we've lost 83% since 1950. But then she also went out and conducted interviews with indigenous elders and native fishers, people who've been working on the water their whole life and have seen the changes firsthand. The average loss they reported? Also 83% for that same time period. The numbers are startling, but it's not the numbers that caught Andrea's eye. And I just find it amazing that wow. you can use this big global data set on freshwater vertebrates from around the world and I can talk to these fishers who have you know lived changes in their rivers and I arrive at the same value I know it's you know it's an average a lot goes into an average there's a lot there's a lot of noise in that but it's they're both really you know beacons of concerning change in these systems the scientific knowledge and the indigenous knowledge, two very different approaches, both reaching the same important conclusion. Andrea is a citizen and member of the Niska First Nation, which is in northern British Columbia, just at the base of the Alaska Panhandle. But that's not where she grew up. She was raised on the opposite side of Canada, on Prince Edward Island. Almost as far as you can get without leaving the country and still being in it. Her father is of Niska indigenous heritage here in BC, and her mother is of Irish descent back in eastern Canada. 
So although she didn't grow up among her relatives in the Niska Nation, her time near the Atlantic Ocean led to a love for science, and it became a natural fit for her to get into the science of fisheries research. She traveled all over the world studying fish and documenting the steep decline in their health and numbers. And through this work, I found, and thanks to the fish, I found that route kind of home and realized that I'm working on fish and fisheries issues around the world that are shared here in Canada. And why am I not working with and for this massive aspect of my own culture that I didn't get to grow up within, mostly because of colonization? Your story is so compelling already (laughs) that you traveled the world in order to find your own roots back here in some ways, but but still on the opposite side of this giant country of, of Canada. It was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I for me, it's fascinating. For me, I often think about it, you know, in the same kind of like cyclical way as the salmon move. I've had so many elders tell me like, you think you had a choice in any of this? Like, huh. it's in your blood. You're meant to be doing this work. And so I listen to them. <laughs> so today at the Center for Indigenous Fisheries, Andrea is perfectly positioned to bring together the traditional science methods and the knowledge found among the indigenous groups in Canada and beyond. Two-Eyed Seeing is called Etawaptamuk in Mi'kmaq, and it's this principle of learning to see from one eye with the strengths of indigenous knowledges and ways of knowing, and from the other eye with the strengths of Western knowledges and ways of knowing, and learning to use both of these eyes together for the benefit of all. The term two-eyed seeing was first used by Mi'kmaq elder Dr. Albert Marshall. He argued that we will do a far better job of being stewards of the environment if we take together all the tools that are available to us and all of the ways of knowing that are available to us. You know, we purposefully say indigenous peoples and indigenous cultures because we are not one pan-indigenous group around the world. We are distinct peoples in all of these contexts. There are so many cultures who share that same kind of principle and practice of embracing knowledges, of, of allowing there to be a plurality in ways of knowing. I'm from Katit um, Village, one of, we're a part of the Awakenuch Nation, which is in the central coast of BC, in, at the head of Rivers Inlet. This is Jen Walkus. She's another First Nations scientist I've come to talk with. Jen worked on a recent study that benefited from two-eyed seeing and made an amazing discovery. But first, it's important to understand a bit about life in Rivers Inlet, where she lives. And we're a small community of about 60 people. And we have probably about 30 houses, about 30 dogs. And we live pretty much with grizzlies inside the community. In this area, the grizzlies outnumber the humans. And they've always been neighbours. Wherever you hear dogs barking, just don't go that way. And so you just keep walking wherever it is that you're Because the bears going. are triggering the dog barking? Yep. The dogs will bark, and usually they'll only bark when the bear is right close to them, they don't follow it all over the village because it's, their, it's only their job to look after their little part of the village. Jen's ancestors have lived in this area from as far back as 14,000 years. It's on a very remote stretch of coastal British Columbia. Picture big forested mountains and islands and a rugged coastline. 
Rivers Inlet is completely off the road system. The only way in or out of Jen's home is by plane or boat. But even that isolation didn't save them from the Western power centers. With European colonization, the Wicano people weren't permitted to practice their traditions. They were forced into residential boarding schools and weren't even allowed to leave their village without permission from someone called the Indian agent. But Jen tells me her village became notorious for fighting back. When they were trying to settle in BC and they were trying to convert all of the natives over to whatever the religion of the day was, they built a church in Rivers Inlet. We used to have canneries and so there was a lot of, a lot of people there. And at some point, the Oiknuk people burnt down their church. Before they burnt it down, they pulled out the pews. There are old photographs of the pews being used around the village after the villagers destroyed the church. And it was a demonstration of, of, of not wanting to be a part of this conversion that was, mm-hmm. that was going on the schools and the cultural... We're, we're one of the very few reserves that doesn't have a church in the community because we just said no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Western oppression did a lot of damage, threatening not just a way of life, but the very existence of native people. And as Western culture fought to take over, other important things were pushed aside, like indigenous knowledge. This tension between First Nations people and Western governments still holds true today, but as an indigenous local, Jen is finding ways to bridge that gap when it comes to science. She's the co-author of a new study that discovered something startling in the relationship between the indigenous groups in the area and the grizzly bears that are part of life around her village and the surrounding hills. And it's an ages-old relationship. They say we learned how to, a lot of what we eat, a lot of what we do from bears. It's been a big part of our legends, our history. We have a lot of the same needs. We're omnivores. We both have sort of the same size Range needs the same. They eat a lot more than us, but <laughs> it's still, it still works. Jen works at the fisheries department of the tribe, and here, like most of the West Coast, salmon numbers are much lower than they used to be. So it's a balancing act to successfully fish enough salmon for the needs of the village, but also leave enough for the bears, because they all share this place. And I was really concerned that we didn't have a way to count salmon and that we didn't know how much bears were taken, taking even if we had counted them. So it was trying to look at how do we answer those questions. So Jen partnered up with PhD student Lauren Henson, a conservation scientist with Raincoast Conservation Foundation, who uses genetics to study grizzly bear populations. It involved doing a DNA survey of the grizzlies in Jen's area to try and put together how much fish we need to set aside for bears as well as for people. How do you get DNA out of a grizzly bear? Um, (laughs) You go up with a little pair of tweezers and... (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, but When they're sleeping, maybe? (laughs) Yeah, when they're sleeping. What they actually do is they put this big pile of debris... Branches, leaves, moss, into this big pile along with some nice stinky scent lure to attract the bears. Then the researchers surround it all with a barbed wire fence. So once they start smelling that, the bears will come in to try and figure out what it is. They think it's a rotting dead something and it could be tasty. So they come in and they climb over or under that wire fence. 
As they do, little tufts of their fur get snagged by the barbs on the fence and hello DNA, and not just for genetic information. It's got all of the remnants of what they've eaten, how stressed they are, are they male, female, are they pregnant, just all of the things you could want to know about a bear that you can get from a DNA sample. Mm. So we gather them, send them out for DNA sampling, and... That poor bear has no more privacy. <laughs> it's a treasure trove into that bear's life. Yeah, it is. The, the, the information that you can get from, from those hairs. And that treasure trove of information she and the team had collected would allow the scientific researchers to learn more about the bears, their relatedness to each other, and their range, and their diet. Jen tells me she's had some training, but that she's not a regular scientist who's completed a traditional science route through university. Someone... A fair amount of papers. I'm, I wouldn't call self-taught. I'm work-taught, I guess. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's this background of on-the-ground experience with Western science, coupled with her knowledge as a First Nations person, that allows Jen to see both sides. And it was very useful coming into the bear DNA study. The idea was to look at a few things, not just how many salmon bears were eating, but importantly, through genetics, how bears may be related or not related to each other across different areas of the local landscape. This is important when it comes to conservation, knowing where different bear genetic groups are and if they're connected or separate, so they can be managed or protected properly. As you might expect, Usually, the genetic separation between groups of animals happens because of a physical barrier, a wide river, a mountain range, or a human barrier like development. But what they found in this study surprised almost everyone, and it was two-eyed seeing that got them there. My name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts. The results were in. When the bear research team looked at the DNA data they'd collected from grizzly bears in their study area, they found that the bears were genetically distinct from one another. This was a little surprising because there was no physical barrier between these three bear populations. But when Jen Walkus and the other local indigenous people looked at the results, something even more unexpected was revealed. When you sample the bears and their relatedness comes up, the boundaries really closely resemble the language groups. Jen and the other researchers found an alignment between the bear groups and the First Nations groups. So us and Heltzuk are one language group. Nuhulk is another language group. Kittisu is another one. And so when we started looking at the data and we're looking at the maps, it showed that we we really closely overlap with how related the bears are based on our language groups. The scientific research on bear DNA showed these three bear groups, 
But thanks to two-eyed seeing, indigenous knowledge of the local languages pointed out the overlap with human groups too. The scientists would most likely have never put the two together. If they hadn't been working with us, because nobody really knows what language groups are. The, 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 the non-indigenous scientists could have come into this area, done their science and left and not had this. And not figured out why, because they wouldn't know that if you never talk to the nations, you wouldn't think about the fact that it's, it matches with this nation's borders. The grizzly bears and the indigenous people of coastal British Columbia have lived side by side for millennia. And over that time, humans and bear groups have settled in these three distinct areas. Even the words used to identify these bear populations were different in each area. And here, the bears remain in these genetic groups, not because obstacles, you know, rivers or mountains, are stopping them from traveling but because the areas they live in are so rich with food resources, salmon, berries, roots, that they don't have to travel. Because the bears in each area have learned very well over generations where the foods are that they need to survive. They know their neighborhood, so they don't leave, and they have become genetically distinct. The same thing happened with the people as well. So if there's enough food to sustain a bear population that it doesn't have to leave the area there's going to be enough food to sustain the people population so that it doesn't have to leave the area so we're going to stay relatively related to one another the people stay put in these resource rich areas so their languages have become distinct in the same way even the words used to identify these bear populations were different in each area as a First Nations person, Jen was less surprised about this overlap than some of the Western scientists. And it makes a lot of sense because, like we had said, the bears are the ones that taught us how to eat, what to eat. Does it, does it make you look at, the, um, look at the bears in a slightly different way? I mean, it's like families of bears connected to families of people in, in those regions, right? Is it? We've always felt that way. We've always been really closely tied to it. We wouldn't even started have started looking at this research if we hadn't have felt that way because we don't have a lot of spare money. So the fact that we're putting our own time and money into this research, it, it's because we consider them family. And this finding could have wider implications. For example, traditionally, bears have not been found on the islands off the coast of Rivers Inlet, but they are starting to show up there. And so what, what is driving that? If for millennia, long enough for it to show up in their DNA that these bears are related, these bears have stayed where they are, why are they suddenly moving? It could potentially be a sign that these food-rich areas that have always provided for these bears aren't producing as much as they used to, a land of plenty that's being lost. So they are starting to venture out to islands beyond their neighborhoods, and perhaps it comes back to the fish. We're having real problems getting enough salmon. So is that what's driving the bears to move as well? And so it's these kinds of questions that I really want to be able to go to government and say that we need a better management system. Because what we have, the assumptions that we're, that we're managing with aren't accurate. We need to find a better way in light of climate change, in light of all of the food instability that's going on to manage bears in a way that makes sure that we carry on, in a way that bears carry on. 
Jen is hoping the team can continue to map bear DNA to try and figure out what's disrupting these centuries-old genetic groups and leading bears to explore new areas like the islands. This will allow wildlife officials in BC to manage bear populations more holistically. Two-Eyed Seeing is opening new paths for Jen Walkus and her team. How this type of learning and research can be done, in many ways, blending old and new worlds. But talking to Dr. Andrea Reed, it seems that not everyone is on board with the tenets of two-eyed seeing. Western science hasn't exactly been the most welcoming place for indigenous knowledge. Do you feel, as a scientist, is there a rub still between these two worlds? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that there is, you know, quite a bit of pushback within the science world, within the Western science world, um, that doesn't see Indigenous knowledge as inherently scientific. This knowledge has either been flat-out rejected as not scientific enough, or the parts deemed useful have been conveniently cherry-picked, often without giving anything in return. That's often been the history within science, that like we can appropriate Indigenous knowledge, we can take that as data and just treat it the same way we feed any other information into our models. But what two-eyed seeing and the, these ask us to find these like kind of parallel tracks of treating knowledge systems mm. where it's not about that kind of utilitarian view. It's about allowing both to coexist and how can we find that ethical space to bring both into play. But Andrea does feel people are starting to open up to the idea. And part of it is taking a fresh look at what science means. If you take science to mean systematically understanding the world through observation, through experimentation... By that definition, indigenous knowledge systems are very much scientific. They are time-tested, multi-generational. They are based in the places and on the organisms that, that matter most to, to the peoples who inhabit those places. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like if a state or a province or a country could switch its tactics and switch its you know, almost rebrand itself into looking at wildlife in a very different way and learning from indigenous people and knowledge keepers. And, and um, it would just switch our entire relationship with nature almost overnight if we could pull that off. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And relationship is really that key word of seeing fish as relatives, not resources, because that asks of us a huge different set of questions about how we practice care and how we look after these beings that have looked after us for generations. It's really about living in that kind of reciprocal way. This isn't about one knowledge system checking up on the other. Cross-validation is not the purpose. Andrea says that often two-eyed seeing gets held up as indigenous knowledge that is just there to support Western science, that the indigenous knowledge has to match the science in order to be accepted or to be valid. And I think that's what we really need to, to challenge. The strength isn't from having the duplicate information and seeing how they compare. The strength is from getting more information. So the more distinct it is, the more encompassing it can be and the more holistic it can be about kind of all dimensions of the system. It's not that one is right and one is wrong, but maybe they're asking a different set of questions to come to a fuller, more complete answer. And just as importantly, Andrea believes that two-eyed seeing is a way to decolonize Western science. And she has the backing of the University of British Columbia where she teaches. 
In some ways, this new collaborative, two-eyed seeing approach to understanding the environment is just beginning. We've never had a conversation to shape the agenda without, you know, researchers arriving with an agenda to shove down someone's throat and to force upon someone and just maybe go ahead with work and ask for permission later. And the way that we're moving through this, that is responding to community needs and interests, that is being shaped by our partners, I think that profoundly is disrupting the the status quo of science. Andrea views this as decolonizing the scientific process because more and more, scientists of today are not just pursuing knowledge for knowledge's sake. They're doing this work for and with these First Nations who want answers to really critical fisheries and wildlife questions that affect their everyday lives. Jen Walkus agrees. She sees traditional Western science as very siloed, and in some ways, separated from the natural world it's trying to understand. In her view, as with the grizzly bear study, it's essential that her and other indigenous scientists help others see through two eyes instead of one. Smush those two things together, and some of the best ideas, I think, come out of when two different ways of thinking come together, because it makes you see things in ways you haven't seen them before. And so I think... It can be uncomfortable sometimes because we're both learning how do we do that successfully. But I think it really does allow us to see things in a way that pushes boundaries. There is something more to answering these questions about our natural world than just data and measurements. It's about long, deep, emotional connections too. I had a moment in my conversation with Andrea Reid where we reflected on finding that human side to science. It's funny, as a scientist growing through science and, and getting training, I, I, I personally have this very spiritual side of me when it comes to nature. I'm in love with nature, not just, I don't just love nature, I'm in love. There's something incredibly deep about it. I would... I wouldn't exist without it. I couldn't manage life without it, right? You know, but then I was constantly trying to think from my scientific side of my brain about, okay, how do I present myself in, in that way? And it isn't one or the other. It's both together, isn't it? And that's powerful. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a similar thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that word love is so important. So many, most ecologists I know are in this quote-unquote business because they have this childhood love that that has put them in this place and that has motivated them to this day in their work but it never appears in our papers it never appears in a professional way and it could be a climate change adaptation strategy if we loved the beings if we loved the fish the way we ought to we would do what we would need to to protect them And I think we really need to consider that love is like an acceptable emotion and feeling to bring into our work because it's what it's what brought us here.
If you'd like to see a map of these three grizzly bear populations, head on over to our Instagram at thewildpod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. The wild is inspired not just by nature, but by the people who work in it, love it, protect it. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Paul Lister, Mark Wilkins and Rebecca Badger, Bob Yellowlease, Barbara Stallman, and Annie Mize, and to Entota, the Nature Trust of the Americas. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Giannotti, Kara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm Chris Morgan. If you enjoy the wild, please do tell your friends. We're in this to inspire as many people as possible. Thanks so much for listening, and take care of each other. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one. Asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.